Welcome to the latest episode of Your Wealth with Gemma Dale, a podcast series designed to help you create, grow and protect your wealth. Hi and welcome to this episode of Your Wealth. I'm Gemma Dale, NABTRADE's Director of SMSF and Investor Behaviour. Well, it continues to be a weird time in markets. And I feel like I've said that for so long, but asset prices are still pretty solid. Valuations haven't fallen terribly much, maybe in some pockets, but the economic outlook is quite extraordinarily murky. We've just had another interest rate increase in Australia and in the US, uh, which tells us that central banks are a bit worried, but markets seem to be less so. So what do you do in this environment? How do you position your portfolio? What do you buy and sell? Do you buy and sell anything? Roger Montgomery is a portfolio manager at Montgomery Investment Management. In fact, it's his business. And he's well known to many of you as a commentator and investor and one of our favorite guests. Roger, thank you so much for joining me. Great to be with you again, Gemma. And hello to everyone. So Roger, perhaps I'm the only one who feels it's super weird, but what are your thoughts on where the market appears to be? At present, um, it's always a hard one to answer because there's so many. There's so nuanced. the The reality is that we're not investing in the market unless you're an index investor. Um, you're investing in individual companies, and despite all the concerns about a recession, despite all of the uh, worries about rising interest rates and so forth, uh, and persistent inflation, albeit disinflation, which is what we've got now, and I'll talk more about that in a moment. There are companies still reporting double-digit earnings growth. There are companies still reporting record margins. There are companies underbid. You know, they've been bid by another company or by private equity, and their share prices are trading below the bid price. So there are plenty of opportunities out there for investors, even in a market which, you know, if you just read the headlines, you'd zip up your wallet and probably not want to look. So, I, yeah, I think I think there's still plenty of opportunity out there. And such an interesting way to start this conversation. Uh, I studied economics and it's hard when you've got a macro background to dissociate yourself from the macro background, yeah. particularly when it's such a complex background at present, one we haven't hmm. seen for so many, frankly, decades. I say Indeed. this all the time. Since the 80s. Spent all this time learning about inflation at university and then never saw inflation in the wild. <laughs> just yeah. didn't exist yeah. by the time I was an adult. Uh, and then suddenly it's back and we're talking about it again for the first time in a very, very long time, as you say. And yet the point you make is so true. What's happening with companies and in the market is not what we fear, perhaps, in the economy. Do you want to talk a bit more about that? You made a point yeah, about well, disinflation me, too. Well, yeah, let, let me give you, also oh, the disinflation um, topic is an interesting one because even Philip Lowe in his most recent statement uh, from the RBA said that uh, inflation has peaked, but it remains persistent. Um, what we're seeing is disinflation. It's slow, now, disinflation isn't deflation. Deflation is lower prices. So that's where, you know, petrol goes from $2 a litre to $1.50 a litre. That, that's not happening. But what's happening is the rate of increase in prices, the inflation rate, is declining. And that's called disinflation. Now, historically, all the way back to the 1970s, historically, when you've had economic growth, even anemic economic growth, as long as economic growth was positive, and you had disinflation, historically, that's been very, very positive for 
equity prices, um, shares, um, particularly innovative growth companies. Um, so typically, uh, disinflation and economic growth combined is good for innovative growth companies. And guess what? You look at the NASDAQ from the start of this year, and it is up almost 20%. It's up about 18 and a bit percent for you. There aren't many dividends, obviously, out of the NASDAQ, but it's about 18 to 19% at the moment. And that's only since the 1st of January or the 31st of December. So it's happened again. Uh, disinflation and economic growth has been good for innovative growth companies. So, so that's the first thing. We're in a, a, an environment where everyone's worried about recession, but we are still growing. And everyone's worried about inflation, but we've got disinflation. And so, you know, people are worried. People don't want to invest, but the conditions are good for investing. So that's the first thing. And then you've got various companies out there that are, you know, I alluded to this earlier in my first comments, there are companies that are doing really well. Take, for example, um, Transurban, big company, well-known, seen as an interest rate proxy or a bond proxy for investing. It's a, seen as an income stock. Well, it's actually an income stock with some growth now. Why is that? Well, 68% of its income is indexed to inflation. And you might remember that last year, inflation went above 7%. And those increases, those inflation rate increases, they are going to feed through to price increases for toll roads. And that's the revenue, that's 68% of, of um, Transurban's revenue. 27% of their revenue receives increases at 4.25% per annum. So for the next 12 or 18 months, even perhaps a little bit longer, you are going to see increases, you're going to see revenue increases and toll road increases of no less than 4.25%. And a large portion of the revenue is going to go up by much more. And investors don't seem to have priced that in uh, to Transurban shares, because every time it announces an increase to its dividend, the shares pop, um, you know, the shares go up, uh, which tells me that investors uh, haven't fully accepted I guess, how long the longevity of uh, of these increases that are going to come through. Um, now, I confess that this is one of our top 10 holdings uh, in the Montgomery Fund, the Montgomery Private Fund. Um, and then there are other businesses that are growing strongly in the small cap space as well. Uh, and so, for example, another one in the uh, another one in the transport sector, Alliance Aviation Services. Uh, it's, you know, I've spoken to you before, Gemma, about um, not liking airlines. Well, this is an airline that actually generates a 30% return on invested capital because what it does is it buys aircraft from airlines or the industry when it's in distress or when they're in distress. It buys those uh, planes very, very cheaply and then it wet leases them to uh, to airlines. So a wet lease is where it provides the aircraft and the crew um, and it gives the airline much more flexibility. Uh, and so Qantas and Virgin have been using its services. And now Qantas has bid for uh, for Alliance Aviation Services. And this business uh, this business is is trading well below the four dollars seventy five. It's trading at about three dollars, uh, and it's trading well below the four dollars seventy five that Qantas bid for the company. Qantas also owns about nineteen point nine percent of it already. Um, but the ACCC has blocked. Uh, the takeover attempt. Uh, so it'll probably end up in court. And that's why the share price is so much, so far below. And we think even in the absence of a bid, it's worth much more than $3. So there's just two examples 
of the sorts of businesses that are out there right now in an environment where a lot of the headline commentary is, you know, that it's scary and it's dangerous. And here are businesses out, out there making good money uh, and uh, with, you know, a lot of action and a lot of interesting uh, interesting stuff happening around them. They're both great examples and it's always it's always important, certainly my challenge to, uh, as I say, dissociate from the macro. You've talked about the importance of looking for quality growth companies and a lot of people tend to think that they're quite different things, right? The growth companies may not have the quality criteria that you might be looking for if you want a more stable portfolio. Do you want to talk through what you mean by that definition sure. and then how an investor goes about finding those sorts of companies, particularly in this environment? Yeah. Um, so I guess it's it's important to um, distinguish uh, between quality and lesser quality. And when we talk about quality, we're talking about businesses that you know can sustainably generate um, attractive rates of return on capital uh, and businesses that might have uh, relatively little debt. Um, I mentioned Transurban a moment ago, and what I didn't say was they have a huge amount of debt, but what they've done is that they've either fixed or hedged that debt last year and the year before at very, very low rates, ultra low rates. So their debt is not going up with interest rates, but their revenue is going up with inflation, which means their margin's going to improve. So uh, so we're looking for businesses, generally speaking, and Transurban is probably the exception when I talk about debt, but we're looking for businesses that generate high rates of return on incremental capital. In other words, when they generate a profit, they have the opportunity to retain a very large amount of that profit and reinvest it at high rates of return. So that's the first thing that we're looking for. And then we're looking for businesses that have growth that are going to be substantially bigger in the future than they have been in the past. And so you know, Warren Buffett once said, put together a portfolio of businesses whose earnings march upward over the years, and so too will the value of the portfolio. And that's what we're looking for. We're looking to buy at, a, at an attractive price, a part share of an easy to understand business whose earnings we believe are going to be materially higher in the future. And they're the best businesses to own. That's a quality investment if you can find one. Yes, the if you can find it bit is always the uh, the biggest challenge, I think, for investors. Do you feel that, you know, there is this talk about recession and I have to keep making the point to investors and the general public. And you know, we're not in recession. We're not even close, right? We're very much in positive economic growth territory at the moment. But that may change. And I do understand, I do understand at the individual level, you may not feel like it, right? If your salary or your income has not gone up anywhere near as much as inflation over the last decade, you can feel very, very poor. And like the economic out, outlook is very dark, despite the fact that there are plenty of sectors of the economy doing really well. Mm. Do you think the changing economic backdrop is limiting the number of companies that are starting to tick those boxes? Do you think that we're sort of, you know, we used to think about growth companies when rates were obscenely low as mm. basically anything that could grow an extraordinary number of customers, right? And even they were growing customers even when they were making a massive loss and often sort of loss leader products and yeah, so that, on. 
Yeah, they're not the growth companies that I'm talking about. You know, I'm not talking about the prof- I call them profitless prosperity companies. Um, I'm not talking about those. I'm talking about quality businesses that are generating attractive rates of return on their capital, and a profitless business is not doing that. So what the market or what the industry has referred previously to as growth companies being those profitless prosperity tech stocks, for example, and that's not what I'm referring to, you know, those those AI businesses and the autonomous vehicle businesses and those sorts of things. I'm actually referring to businesses that are growing, but are also generating a high rate of return on invested capital. In other words, they are profitable. But you're right, the circumstances that we're in at the moment economically are going to take a while to dig ourselves out of simply because I think central banks are reluctant to rip the Band-Aid off quickly. So the result is that they're peeling the Band-Aid off slowly, which means this sort of painful environment that we're in is probably going to stay around for a while. I mean, if you think about feedback loops, you know, it really is, you know, the question I ask is how do we fix this? The RBA raises rates and what happens? Mortgage rates go up. Then what happens is consumers who have a mortgage, um, they approach their uh, employer and they say, look, my mortgage is going up so much, I need a raise. And hey, you better give me one because the employment environment is so tight, the employment market is so tight, it's so easy for me to get a job somewhere else, you better pay me more. And so wages go up. And then of course, companies pay those wages. So they have to then pass on the cost increase to higher prices, which is inflation, which then causes the RBA to raise rates. So then you start back at the beginning again. The RBA raises rates, mortgage rates go up, wages increase, that's inflationary, RBA raises rates. How do you get out of this predicament? It could be around with us for quite a bit longer. But what that means is that we become used to it. We get used to it. It's not so scary. We work through this environment. We know that we're going to work through this environment. And if inflation is high, you need growth. You need more growth to offset the adverse effect on your wealth and on your purchasing power from inflation. You need growth. If inflation is 6%, then you are not going to be able to afford the same bottle of wine in five years' time that you can afford today unless your wealth goes up by or your income goes up by more than 6%. So you're even more compelled to find growth if inflation is high. And the difference between uh, what many investors do, uh, which is search for income to compensate for the inflation versus looking for growth, um, well, the effect is chalk and cheese. So the example that I like to use, uh, and I've used this many times in the past, is Telstra versus CSL. So Telstra, back in 2013, had uh, a yield of, and I'm, I use 2013 because I'm going back 10 years, but we could go back to 2015, we can go back to 2005, I've got all the data, um, and it's the same story irrespective of the period that we choose. But Telstra, back in 2013, 10 years ago, had a yield of 6.25%, very attractive. CSL, by contrast, had a yield of 25 two, three percent or two and a quarter percent. So six and a quarter percent for Telstra versus two and a quarter percent for CSL. So let's assume for a minute you threw a hundred thousand dollars into Telstra because you liked its income of six thousand two hundred and fifty dollars a year uh, back in 2013. Fast forward 10 years, that hundred thousand dollars 
is now 92,410 and the income has also dropped to $3,795. So you've lost capital and your income has gone down because you're attracted to the yield. You weren't thinking about whether it was a quality business with growth prospects. CSL, on the other hand, which generates a high rate of return on incremental capital and has another 20 years of growth ahead of it or 50 years of growth or even longer, put $100,000 into that back in 2013. Yes, the income was lower. It only gave you $2,233 of income. But fast forward 10 years, that $100,000 has grown sixfold. It's almost $600,000 now. And the income has tripled from $2,233 to $6,372. So the growth stock is actually a better income stock. And that's the difference between investing for yield and investing in quality growth, which is what I'm imploring people to do in this environment where inflation might be persistent and the outlook is still quite uncertain. It's such a powerful and relevant example for those who've been investing for some time. So I mean, (laughs) pre-COVID, if you've been investing pre-COVID, if you've been investing post-COVID, CSL and Telstra are two companies that were probably not on your radar, to be honest with you. But um, but for those of us who've been around for a decade or two decades, those two companies are in, well, Telstra was in every portfolio, everybody from sort of 2000 onwards. And uh, and CSL was only in a handful. And the reason no one bought CSL was always because it was too expensive. And I say that because I've been told by 90% of retail investors I've spoken to over the last two decades, it's too expensive. It's too expensive. Uh-huh. I love the company. It's a great company, too expensive. And yet the example you've given Goodness, it may be expensive, but the uh, the performance has been just astonishing. Last few years, I do understand investors may not feel that way and they might look at Telstra and think it's worth a nibble again, but hell of an example over the last 10 years. It's tripled just since 2015. It's And it will, over at some point in the next 10 years, investors will make you know multiples of their money again. I don't know what the share price is going to do month to month or week to week, but I know if I cast myself forward a decade, CSL investors will do very, very well. Um, it's risky uh, to invest in CSL for a week or a month because you don't know what share price is going to do and you don't know whether China's going to invade Taiwan or anything like that. But cast yourself forward 5, 10, 15, 20 years and it's a lot less risky. It's 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 safer for me to say you will do well owning a high quality business that's growing. It's a, yeah, it's such a powerful example. You've mentioned yields within the context of the stock market, and it, it's such an interesting one because investors who have been seeking income, and I'm talking particularly about retirees, mm. and particularly retirees with a self managed super fund, you have a lot of money to invest. They make the decisions themselves, and as yields have fallen, they've been forced to make some uh, less than ideal decisions, right? Absolutely forced to make them in order to get the income that they're seeking, Mm. which means either taking much less yield, making much less from an income perspective on your portfolio, but still being relatively defensive from an asset class perspective or moving up the risk curve. And we've seen it really since 2009 when rates started to fall really aggressively and then just stayed crazy low. Uh, So many retirees moving into equities for yield, Mm. which is not logically how it's supposed to happen if you go back 15, 20 years. It sounds 
bizarre to have to go back that far to traditional portfolio construction methods. But you have managers within your portfolio who don't just focus on equities. Mm. Are you seeing investors start to think about moving back into traditional defensive assets again? Well, a conventional portfolio might have, say, 40% in equities and 60% in fixed interest or bonds. And if you believe that interest rates are going to fall, then bonds are going to be a very good asset class to invest in. But when inflation is above 4% historically, and this is according to research out of a UK bond broker called Reddington, um, when uh, inflation is above 4%, the correlation between equities and bonds is very, very high. In other words, when inflation is above 4%, you don't get in diversification benefits from bonds. They move with equities. They move in the same direction. Uh, and so if you're looking for uncorrelated returns or diversification benefits and some income, well, there are other asset classes that are now emerging that might be more attractive. And the one I want to mention is, and, and this isn't it's not suitable for everyone, so that's the important thing to say. Um, and it's only for, even for people for whom it is suitable, it's only suitable for a portion of your portfolio, which is true of all asset classes anyway. Uh, and that is private debt uh, or private credit. Um, and this is a growing area because what we've seen is we've seen massive demand for debt capital companies both large, medium, oh, sorry, large, medium and small uh, corporates in Australia looking for capital that they can't get from traditional sources. Uh, there's just not enough out there or there's not a willingness to lend to them. And so what's happened is there's, there's this growing asset class now uh, called private credit or private debt. And this is where private investors provide the debt capital for businesses to grow. And, you know, an example might be uh, a farmer who's got a $5 million crop of wheat that they need to get off in the next few weeks uh, and their head is busted. Um, they need $100,000 and they need it tomorrow. Well, you know, some traditional approaches to borrowing that money might mean if they don't have a line of credit, uh, might mean that it could take five or six weeks for them to get approval. But of course, by then, the wheat's turned into feed wheat and they, that's not an option. Uh, and so, you know, there are companies out there who need short-term loans, uh, very small amounts of money or relatively small amounts of money, uh, and that's being provided by private investors now. And this is a growing asset class. Um, and the yields have been very, very good. Now, one criticism of this sector is that it hasn't been tested in a recession. We haven't had a full cycle, but we have kind of had a recession during COVID and during that disaster where three or four million people were unemployed. Admittedly, there was a lot of support from government, um, uh, a lot of fiscal support, but I suspect if there was a recession in Australia, there would also be a lot of support uh, by the government and from the Reserve Bank of Australia as well with through lower interest rates. And remember, recessions which everyone seems to be scared about are two quarters of negative growth. Uh, so we're not talking about the end of the world. We're talking about six months of negative growth. Uh, so it isn't the end of the world and we get through it. And the other surprising thing, by the way, is that equities tend to bottom uh, at the beginning or just into the start of a recession. You don't have to wait for the end of the recession for a recovery in equities. So there's a couple of comments that I want to make about where investors can find income at the moment. And, and some of these funds are generating returns of 6, 7, 8, 9%. 
um, uh, and monthly cash income as well. So it's a growing asset class. It's got nothing to do with the stock market. You're not exposed to the stock market. So it does provide potentially diversification benefits for some investors. But of course, you need to seek personal professional advice before investing in any of these things, even the equities we've talked about today. Yeah, there's always the uh, the critical decision-making point about whether or not it's relevant to your personal portfolio. Indeed. And that point about the difference between those who are seeking just income versus those who are seeking seeking income and growth is quite well, important. Jimmy, can I, I say, can I just can I just say, you know, it's so common for me. It's so I frequently hear people say, I need to, I need to get as much growth as I can out of my portfolio before I retire. Because then I'm going for income. Well, no, no. If you retire today at 65 and you're healthy, you could live another 25 or 30 years, uh, even more. Some people will live longer than that. And that means you need growth, but you're still investing for another three decades. So you don't want to shut off the opportunity for growth for the next 20 or 30 years uh, and just focus on income today. You'll definitely end up with less purchasing power in 10, 15, and 20 years if you just go for a fixed income today. It's really important to have that growth in your portfolio even after you retire. And remember this, the stock market does not care how old you are. It's not thinking about how old you are. So sensible investment behavior needs to occur no matter what your age. You need to be doing the same things irrespective of your age because that's what the market rewards. It rewards sensible decision-making and investing in high-quality businesses at reasonable prices. It will always reward that irrespective of your age. There's actually a sensational piece of research uh, and the easiest way to demonstrate it is with a chart, which I will try to find and publish on the NABTRADE website actually, which shows that for the vast majority of people, something like 60% of your lifetime balance comes after you retire. So it's the growth you get in retirement that actually dramatically impacts your wealth. And obviously a meaningful component of that is the fact we're just living a lot longer, but very, very few people draw down on their assets, let alone to zero in retirement. Like that's Mm. not what happens. So we have this mentality that you accumulate when you're young and you decumulate when you're old. It's not what happens. And you're absolutely right. You do need to keep thinking about growth for at least some period. On the flip side, also, if you're young, we tend to tell young people to pin their ears back and not worry about income. You know, you're good. You just go for growth. But if you're saving to buy a house or you have short-term goals, that's not relevant for you either. Mm. So uh, yes, some of our sort of traditional thinking may not be relevant to you, right? Yeah, it's true. You know, the, um, I always say to people, if you, if you need the money in the next uh, three years, then you know the equity market may not be the right place to invest if you need that money. Uh, so if you need the money, if you can foresee a requirement um, in the next 36 months, then the stock market might not be the right place to go because it could be lower uh, in the time when you need to draw your cash than where it is today. Um, it's only for it's only for longer term investing where you can ride out. Uh, any decline in the stock market and wait for it to recover, um, that's the money you should be investing in the stock market. Yeah, that one's 100% uh, correct. And it doesn't matter how amazing you are at investing. If you get hit with COVID just when you want to 
Mm. withdraw or the world gets hit with COVID just before you want to withdraw your money and you've lost 30% of your portfolio. That's a tragic outcome. Uh, you know, and we obviously hope that doesn't happen to people. Uh, but all those things that we do with respect to diversification, we kind of forget about sometimes. They do, they do matter. One final question for you. Again, coming back to this concept of quality growth, we haven't talked too much about price, like what you need to be willing to pay or not pay for an asset. A lot of the interest in markets is always about what's the next big thing, where are the big trends that we want to be investing, the mega trends are where everybody gets excited. I can tell you and uh, it won't come as any surprise, it's all been about lithium on the platform for the last probably two years. Everyone's got a few lithium stocks tucked away and really enjoyed that. Are you looking at those long-term trends and thinking there is a place for exposure in your portfolio or do you feel a lot of those things have just run too hard? Uh, Well, there was a period where they ran really hard and then there was a period where they pulled back and then there was another period where they ran really hard. So um, the thematic is arguably generational. Um, It's, it's happening. Uh, You know, the, the um, decut, we call it the decarbonization theme. Uh, So it's not only uh, lithium batteries and propelling cars, uh, but also uh, green energy. So that's the decarbonisation theme. Um, we've invested our small cap managers, uh, Gary Rollo and Dominic Rose, have done extraordinarily well investing in lithium and uh, pulling out at the right times and getting back in at the right times. But, you know, it's, it's, it's not easy for a regular investor to pick the winners. It's much, much harder to know um, what the winning technology is going to be. And right now, the big mo, or what we call the big momentum, uh, is behind lithium-ion batteries. There's a company listed in Australia uh, that's actually working with Deakin University on a more efficient battery that requires less lithium. And that will be important because, quite frankly, um, there is not enough lithium for enough batteries to power all the cars in the world. It's as simple as that. There's just not enough. Uh, and so alternatives are going to have to be developed. It may be that that lithium, which is now the great the great hope uh, for decarbonisation of the you know of the car the world's car and truck fleet, it may be that in twenty years' time it isn't lithium batteries, lithium ion batteries that are fueling all these cars. Uh, Formula One is working with Porsche at the moment uh, on a um, carbon neutral or carbon free um, petrol. Uh, and I don't know how they do that because the ke- the chemistry that I know says the only thing you can that attaches itself to carbon to pull it out is hydrogen. Uh, and how do you transport that uh, in you know in sufficient quantity to deal with it? But they're working on it. Formula One has said that they will not go to electric. They will remain petrol, and they will have uh, a carbon-free uh, gasoline. So if that happens. And it's hypothetical, of course. If it happens, then the infrastructure is already in place to deliver petrol to everybody. So that would be the death knell for lithium-ion batteries potentially. Again, I'm I'm just hypothesising here. I don't know if any of this is going to happen or not. And that's the problem. You don't know what the winning technology is actually going to be. And so for irregular investors, uh, it's not always easy to pick what the winning technology is going to be. You know, I often think about the invention of the automobile. Uh, you know, when Henry Ford decided to start commercial production uh, of, of 
the automobile, um, his lawyer said, you know, Henry, we famously said, Henry, we don't need cars, we need faster horses. Um, it wasn't at the time clear uh, that cars were going to take over the world. And had you been in Germany when Karl Benz uh, invented the first horseless carriage and his wife Berta stole it, wrote, drove to another town and got some groceries and came back, and really, it was it was a woman who transformed global transport. Um, if you'd been there uh, and and seen that it was going to transform the world, you still might not have made any money because there isn't a car company in the United States that exists today that is profitable and that wasn't rescued by government or private equity. They all went broke. There's been something like 1,200 or 1,300 car manufacturers in the United States since the late 1800s. None of them exist today uh, that are still profitable that weren't rescued. Uh, and so, you know, how do you how do you make money even when you get the technology right? It's not easy. That's such a great answer. I don't know if it helps any of us in the short term looking at megatrends, but it's a great way to think about it, that even if you're correct about the technology, uh, you may be very wrong about the investment. I find it really interesting also. You can be right about the technology and it's not the technology that is adopted. Uh, someone I know who is uh, a world-renowned specialist in his field, right? So extremely highly regarded, awards all over the world, keynote speaker at conferences, etc. cetera, uh, gave me and some others some advice about two rival technologies in science. Uh, he was correct but it was not the adopted technology. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Everybody went with the other one. <laughs> so I would have that's made the, a terrible investment had I followed the advice of the expert who uses said technology. Yeah, that's you know the old Betamax versus VHS video. Um, that's what happened. Betamax was a much better technology, uh, better quality sound, better quality visuals, uh, but it was VHS that won that particular race. And both technologies ended up being replaced. You know, there's a famous quote, and it's worth remembering, um, and it was from a, a Saudi oil minister back in the 70s. He said, um, he said, the Stone Age didn't end for a lack of stones. In other words, better technology came along and replaced the technology that everyone was using at the time. He was referring to oil and saying one day something will replace oil and oil will be left in the ground. That's probably going to be true. You know, one day. Uh, it's just hard to pick the winners. Um, it's also really important that you pay the right price for these things because even if you get everything right, even if you have identified a really high-quality growth company, um, uh, if you pay too much for it, you're going to get a low return. The higher the price you pay, the lower your return. And so it's really important to pay reasonable prices for these things, which is why I'm always really, really are vocal about investing aggressively when we get those kind of COVID events, you know, where everyone's worried about Silicon Valley Bank or whatever it is that, that comes up and, and everyone runs for the hills. You know, that Warren Buffett famously said the stock market is the only market uh, where people zip up their wallets and run away in the opposite direction when everything's on sale. So you have to remember that the time to be investing aggressively is when nobody else wants to. And that helps you pay a reasonable price, even for these high quality growth businesses, ensuring that you're going to get a reasonable return. That's such a great way to close. Uh, and the comment I'll make is anyone who holds CSL loves CSL. It's only the people who don't hold it. 
right. you don't want to have to buy it. You just want to hold it. There's a difference. <laughs> we, we, we know of a gentleman who, um, uh, who was uh, unusually not going to work very much um, and he was playing a lot of golf uh, and uh, when asked, uh, and this is a, a true story, I just won't name names, uh, been asked why he you know, was able to take so many holidays. He said he was a, a portfolio manager. He was a, a managed a portfolio of stocks. Uh, and when we drilled down a little bit further, or when one of my colleagues drilled down a little bit further, he said, look, I, I only have one stock in the portfolio. Um, I have CSL uh, and it's now worth, a, you know, over a hundred million dollars. Oh. Um, so it's my ATM machine. You know, when I want to go on holidays, I just tap into some CSL shares. Yeah, wow. Lucky guy. Mm. It's a, Not everyone is going to have that. And to be no, frank, indeed. he bought it when it was $15 or $1. And for the rest of us, we have to look for the other things, right, who have but, that potential. Gemma, there are plenty of businesses out there that, you know, in the future will be will demonstrate the sort of growth that CSL has demonstrated to, grow, to, to date. Um, and if you're disciplined and you're patient, and you pay the right prices for these businesses after identifying them, you 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 can't help but do well. That's such a uh, such a wonderful piece of advice to take out there and to think about. Roger, you and your team publish ideas and insights for investors. Frankly, you know, for those who are interested, you do publish a lot of great stuff on your site. You know, you are frequently putting your ideas out in the world. Where do people go to find out more about you and what you're working on? So, so if you're interested in what we think about markets and some of the stocks that we like, um, you can uh, visit and, and read all of that for free. Uh, it's at rogermontgomery.com. And if you're interested in any of our funds, and we have nine funds uh, from global, uh, global small caps and domestic small caps all the way through to private credit and private debt, um, that's all at montinvest.com. So that's Mon- think Montgomery, Mont, M-O-N-T, invest.com. Roger Montgomery, thank you so much for joining us today. It's an absolute pleasure, Gemma. Always a pleasure to talk to you. Thank you so much for listening. Also, we love hearing from you. We love getting feedback from you guys about what you'd like to hear more about and getting your questions. Please just email us at yourwealth@nab.com.au, and I look forward to talking to you again soon. I'm Gemma Dale. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening to Your Wealth with Gemma Dale. To stay up to date, please subscribe to this podcast series or email us at yourwealth at nab.com.au. Please note that any advice provided in this podcast has been prepared without taking into account your objectives, financial circumstances or needs. Before acting, you should consider the appropriateness of the information. To find out more, please visit nab.com.au.